I um I was at a party probably a month and a half ago. Um, it was a birthday party for my buddies, and uh, <laughs> th- this is the notoriety I have now, which like I'm not super mad about. Um, but I was just hanging out. I had this random person come up that I I had maybe seen in passing at like other parties, like basically a friend of a friend that has shown up to parties that my friend has been at, and they were like, "Hey." <laughs> You're the you're the dude that's really into D and D and black metal, right? And I'm like, <laughs> yeah, that's me. And they're like, hey, do you think I could ever like hop in one of your games? I've never played, but I've always wanted to. And I was like, oh, yeah, that's sure, great. sweet man. That's still a thing, you know. Yeah. People still here, and like they still want to connect and be friends and stuff. And that's, you know, that's one of the like you said, it's one of the great things of D and D is that you meet so many new people. So. It's, it's fun. I loved Stonehell and it's making me want to run that or honestly, I'm even like eyeballing Borrow Deep. Ooh, a podcast mega dungeon. Like that might be fun to run with people. Yeah. I would actually be open to that. <laughs> That's we started content. that on uh, FMRPG. Yeah. The Patreon. I might be down to do like um, a session or two of something mega. That would be some talk about that with Richie because that would also be really cool to play with that. That's also a cool thing about like what you said earlier episodes, Gabe, that you running a specific 5th E or Pathfinder adventure set or path or a dungeon there, it'll be the same thing every time. And a dungeon like Stonehell, if you love it enough as a DM and you don't want to try other stuff, I think you can just introduce that to new players Oh yeah, over and over again and every time it'll be different. I love mega dungeons because realistically everyone has this mutual understanding that and you know call it lazy dming i call it just dming and being like realistic about your dming i don't care how good of a dm you are you are not going to memorize all like 1800 rooms no, no, no. in this thing i pretty much liked Stonehell because since it's a two-page spread I would, you know, all right, playing tomorrow, cool. Uh, let me read the like next four quadrants of this level and then I'll just read them and then kind of briefly go over them. And if the players decide to go, oh, we're going to take the portal and go to like floor eight. All right, cool. Well, just so you know, I'm going to be reading these rooms so it's going to go a little bit slower. Yeah, exactly. I do the same. Yeah, you can roll it and just like read and play as you go. Now, I will say that it's difficult for newer DMs, but I've been DMing for a while and I can manage it. It's fun. We used to bust out random sessions of Stonehell when we were doing our initial playthrough. Just like, hey, all of us are online. You guys want to play some Stonehell for a couple hours? This is during lockdown. We were eternally online and like none of us were working. So it was pretty much just a, for like three to four months, we were just knocking this thing out and it took us like most of a year. But again, we were playing like every day for at least a couple hours, which for some people that is... That's a disgusting amount of D&D. For me personally, it's not enough. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I was thinking that if you look at the one-page dungeon and you you can scan the entire dungeon level quite quickly. So if you need to know, okay, they're making a real ruckus in this room, which other rooms will be affected by that? Everything is control panel layout. You can easily find 
what would be the, the side effects of this. Maybe they're running. You know, running speed is really high, but that means that you get no... You're supposed to basically automatically set off traps and you're making a lot of noise and you'd be easily surprised. You can also do it that way. But when I play Halls of Ardenval, I always get the sense that it's so much stuff. It's so densely written. So I get problems with that. So I have to make my own version that's notes because I play in a VTT. I can draw things and color code rooms. Goblins are here. Uh, halfling bandits are here. Then I know the layout and the, what do you call it? The, the ecology of the dungeon, which things will affect other things. But that I have to create myself because, I mean, I love halls. Ardenval is great, great, great. I mean, the content is so rich, so good, but I have to interpret the text. But yeah. Stonehell, you can just throw an eye on it. Oh, that room has uh, prisoners in it. They might actually come and help you guys yeah. or something like that. What I love about Stonehell is that it's very freeform and allows for so me as a dm sometimes if i've noticed like players they're like all right we open this door all right you know and i'm just gonna read it plain you know vanilla stock you see this wooden table there's a couple of bubbling beakers the air is very acrid and just smells of like chemicals and sulfur and some warm tongs that have like a glow like they were handling something hot and it looks like someone quickly left all right, cool, let's go to the next room. Then it's like, all right, they didn't pick up on that. All right, let me do the next one. I'll make it a little bit more interesting. You know, after like three, I might just take something like, all right, cool, this next room is a ramshackle former prison that someone is using as a fort. They go in and then some guy comes out and he's like, oh my God, are you one of them? And then I'll just roll up a random encounter that Stonehell has and then it's appropriate for that area. Exactly. It fits in and then I can just kind of interconnect and then maybe go, hey, if you come across this guy named, you know, Roland, tell that bastard to give me my 10 Ethereum pieces. He ran to the, you know, to the kobold town. And then it's like, oh, shit, side quest. You know, it's very easy in Stonehell to create side quests just like at the drop of a nickel. It really honestly is kind of my standard now for a mega dungeon, even from like layout and uh, from a just free form improv heavy thing. With that being said... If I'm being honest, I do not think a DM would have fun with Stonehell if you are not, and I don't mean this in a rude way, if you are not good at improv, if you are not good at coming up with creative seeds and like, and what I mean by that is, let's take the little alchemy lab I made. If your players go in and it's an empty room and they just seem disinterested, can you do the exact same thing for the next room, but make it a little bit more interesting? Mm -hmm. Like, kind of have that gauge of your player's interest. Like, if you open up the next one, and it's some kind of darkened library, and they hear whispers, and it just seems like the entire room is just magically dark, are your players going to bite onto that? And if they do bite onto that, do you know where to lead them and, like, bring them to an area that might be of more interest? Like, can you create those sub-plot hooks and draw them in? And if the answer is no, because, you know, and there's nothing wrong with this, you just like reading a module and just kind of like reading and, you know, low prep style, I would not recommend Stonehell. No. Um, and that's only because Stonehell is equal parts mega dungeon and toolkit. Um, yeah. And I think that is the perfect blend for that because I like being able to dabble and doodle and sketch out what I like. You know, if I don't like one thing, can I remove it and replace it with my own? If the answer is yes... That's Stonehill. If the answer is no, it's probably, like you said, something more akin to Halls, where it, it's very thick and it's very condensed, but it's descriptive, so it's a lot. Yeah, but I think if you have problems with that, I think embrace the OSR and just prepare more. 
So I think what you should do is not write your own contents for every room beforehand and, you know, really working hard on that. What I think you should do is create additional tables and use those beforehand. Because if you're having a hard problem with improvisation, you have probably also a hard time randomizing things on the fly and feeling comfortable yeah. with that. So what I would do is just create additional tables that will help you create maybe plot lines or additional NPCs. If you think it's too many monsters, put some more NPCs in your own table and add that. If dungeon dressing table at the back of book one is not good enough for you, create your own similar tables and make it really small just to have a D6. Mm -hmm. Or if you want to have it weighted, have two D6. So you have the most common ones in the middle yep. and the more rare ones out to the extremes, two and 12. Because that way, you yourself are creating your own content. You're randomizing stuff, maybe not at the table, but at least beforehand. So everything is randomized. In that way, you can also become comfortable with that style. So I think make really simple tables. And it doesn't have to be more complicated than uh, halfling thief loves his mother, uh, hates the queen. And boop, there's an NPC. Yeah. You have it there as backup. And you can add it in when you're populating the room if you think mm -hmm. Stonehill Dungeon is too sparse. So I think there's a lot of ways to take this dungeon and make your own stuff or just buy additional uh, supplements that have those kind of contests and then just merge the two. And then you'll feel like, oh, I, now I feel more safe because I know what's actually in the room. And there's, it can be whatever you want then. I think something that I've come across that is quite common with people that are newer to running OSR. <laughs> and it, it's funny because I was a victim of this too until I realized like how tense I was being. And that is, you are the DM. If you don't like something, remove it. I've come across a lot of DMs that, well, the book didn't say that. The book didn't say I could do that. My guy, if you don't like something or if you want to change it or if you want to like modify it so that it's easier for you and your players, you can do that. In fact, OSR is like built for that yeah. from the ground up to be removable. I have probably like 40 different OSR modules on my bookshelf and every single one of them has options for if this is an existing campaign, do this. I mean, the, the adventure I'm writing right now, I have options that I wrote. If this is part of an existing campaign, here's how you can insert it. Being able to change things and tweak things and all of that are, you know, critical for running something like a mega dungeon. So, you know, if everything I'm saying is like, oh, I want to do that, but that seems intimidating. Everything Malcolm just said is complete, just, you know, straight up facts. Like you can, you can remove parts, you can throw in parts, you can, you know, quickly prep things beforehand and make it easy to run. I'm just here telling you that it's 50% toolkit and 50% adventure. But again, you shouldn't let that uh, discourage you. I will agree with you that I think that Stonehell is malleable enough to where you can contort it and twist it to be runnable in any situation, whether you like a lot of prep or you dislike. Yeah, I think what attracts me to this is so much creativity for the DM, no matter how you play it. If you're not into improv, Use a bunch of tables, once you create yourself or ones you found elsewhere, and populate your dungeon beforehand. So you're prepared. You have maybe even uh, context and NPC motivations. You have all that stuff written down. Do it. Do it that way. It's totally fine. But you did create it randomly, and that's what's so cool about it. That will inform you later when you play. I like to do yes. it both in prep, but also at the table, because wanting monsters you can't prepare for that. You could roll mm -hmm. that beforehand, but that's kind of boring. I always do it at the table. And I just have to sometimes run through hoops because I almost never 
say, no, that's stupid. I always work with what the table oh, yeah, gives me. Same. And sometimes I really have to like work really hard to make it work in this situation. And it often it does. And then maybe it doesn't. Then I have to <laughs> retcon it somehow, you know, an hour later when it's settled. Oh, I, I played that wyvern way too uh, mild. It should be much more terrifying. Well, okay. Well, then the next time I'll just amp that up and just <laughs> say that maybe that it was having a, like digestion problems the first time you met it. That's why it was so timid. <laughs> I love the uh, DM being caught with his pants down like, uh, fuck. Um, all right. So, so here you guys are like trying to navigate through something because they, but I, I'm like you, I love that. I love that. I love when my players corner me and then I have to be like, all right, how am I going to get myself out of this? All right, guys, five minute break. And then I'm going to go use the bathroom and then think like, all right, shit, how do I get, how do I get out of this? Like yeah. that to me, that's fun. That's fun. I try never to uh, break immersion. I try never yeah. to say I fuck things up because I know how it is. As soon as oh, yeah. that kind of retconning at the table, uh, if it's not like I actually killed someone by mistake and do you guys want to rewind it? But when it becomes of the world, I always run with it. I never clue the players into it. I fucked something up. I accept what I've done and just move on. And it, that makes the... I think the game more enjoyable to players. So just work with what you got and just have fun and accept everything that's happened and just try to fix it in post. My entire campaign of my main game that I've been running since 2017 is the result of a choice encounter that I did not prep for. <laughs> like I I was thinking about that um, not too long ago. Basically, I had my players, they were prisoners, and then they had this enchanted painting. And my plan was to suck them inside before spitting them out into a different realm. My players, when they were finally presented it, they were just like, nah, we don't want to go in. We're just going to like beat the guards up and then run. And yeah. I was like, wow. Oh, shit. I didn't think about that. <laughs> I thought you guys would enter. So like, I was like, all right, cool. You beat the guards up and then you notice the painting is rattling and then it starts sucking you guys in. And then they came up with a solution, which was, all right, we're just going to take this large table, flip it on its side and then have it suck up and basically clog the painting from sucking us up. Mm. And then we're going to walk out. Smart. That's And smart. I remember thinking, damn, that's really smart. So they left and then I ended up creating what would later be the foundations this is where it gets really crazy. Not only of the campaign that I'm running, but it led me into creating the world that I'm eventually going to be like releasing as a setting book. And had my players just gone through that painting and been very much like, eh, fuck it. Yeah, let's just get sucked in. None of that would exist. And that is wild to me. So like, I'm living proof that just rolling with it and just, you know, you got punched in the gut and you didn't realize it just roll with it because wow. like there's so much cool shit that can come from, from doing that. Um, but, uh, Stonehell actually, uh, since we're, you know, making an episode about Stonehell, the way I inserted Stonehell, because, uh, this campaign has been going on, like I said, since 2017, when we went into lockdown, our main campaign had luckily just finished. So I was like, all right, cool. We'll run Stonehell and we'll make it in my world. And one of the players is my buddy, Evan. Um, and his character, was uh, Rudolf von Schmetthoff, the world's greatest cleric and witch hunter. And his character did like crazy things. In fact, his character was the very first time I had ever seen a cleric in OSR, following OSR rules, use divine intervention. Yeah. And let me tell you, that shit is fucking dope when you see when like a player in OSR full on blows, blows their divine intervention. Because for those that don't know, 
a cleric may get one to two divine interventions um, before their character fully retires because of how hard and how rare it is and how like the work that goes into it, as well as, you know, once they use their divine intervention, they have to get on the good side of their gods because the gods in, in, in traditional OSR, they don't give a shit about you. Like, no. you know, they'll be like, mm, I guess I'll help you because you've been, you know. But you're in debt now. Yeah, now you're in debt. Now you gotta, you know, you're gonna pay up. It's almost like, you know, like a mob boss, like helping you out. Uh, <laughs> you know, it's very reminiscent of the Godfather. Yeah. Um, but what's cool is that that player, he ended up surviving the whole thing. He was one of two people. And what was funny is that the two players that survived was the squishy cleric and then the elf. And what's crazy about the elf is that, again, for people that are newer to OSR, leveling up an elf is like asking to exclusively eat grape nuts for like a month. It is awful. It is so much XP. You will be there forever. But they are pretty strong. And we just didn't expect those two players to, to be the last ones, but everyone had pretty much died. Or And we, we were tracking the graveyard too. Um, we would like take push pins and like put them on our wall and stuff and like we could see and like by the end of it like i had like a fat stack of player you know tombstones on my wall that i was just collecting like yeah. haha i've killed you how many characters died including uh, hirelings do you remember i still have it on roll 20 i think Let me i mean check. i can imagine there must have been like a hundred people i think into the 50s oh. now granted i have players that like my buddy um evan that had the character that lived rudolph von schmettoff he has been playing, he's really, really powerful in terms of like how he can break apart a game. So like at one point he just had a straight up like army of skeletons with just Ray's undead. Um, he found out how to like exploit that to his advantage. We also had other players too that would just like, they would spawn in, you know, cause we were using just a Labyrinth Lord generator. They would spawn in, send me their PDF. We had a player, no joke, die three times in five minutes. I have a Twitch clip of that. <laughs> I'll have to dig and find it and send it to you. But it's a it's a Twitch clip. And within five minutes, because we would stream Stonehell as well. Mm -hmm. Within five minutes, he had died three times. Um, and the funniest part, too, is my favorite death. And it was so funny to us how quickly he died. We used a generator. I had set the parameters. And he had rolled up with plate mail. Because I was like, you know what? Let's just make it. Let's make it hilarious. Maybe... Maybe this dude is thinking he can survive just with the power of money and he buys plate mail. So yeah. I was like, you know what? That's fine. You can roll in with plate mail. And he's like, oh, dude, I'm unstoppable because he got no joke, like perfect 10 rolls. He got plate mail, an actual shield, and he got a long sword. But it was like the god roll on his character generation. And he's like, all right, cool. I see the first door. I wave to the party and the party's like, all right, hey, yeah, you want to join us? And he's like, yes charge and he kicks the door down it just happened to have three dark magi and they were in the middle of a summoning ritual i forgot where it is in in stonehill not even rolled up it's just a stock room they noticed him blasted him with this like dark energy and he immediately fucking died yeah. <laughs> and he and um, the first thing that was said was i'm taking his plate mail and one of the players just took it and they just looted his corpse and i was like all right so you know you just see this this human in a loincloth what do you guys do and they're like uh is there like a well or something nearby and there was like a small nook and i think i was like yeah there's there's just a water well they just dumped his body in the well and they're like all right let's keep going <laughs> 
So, you know, we had fun memories but like that, but um, it's all just built on random encounters and just choices that may or may not have been made. I mean, even if you look at my, my main campaign group, um, that dude, Evan, he wasn't even really thinking of joining and he just heard, oh yeah, Gabe has a spot open. Hey, can I hop in? And now that group is so tight knit. Um, it's not even a D&D group, man. It's just like, it's a small family of us that just play D&D. Like we never missed a beat of missing sessions no, that's and so it's cool. been going on for that long so all that kind of that kind of creativity that kind of enjoyment it's what role playing is all about and i understand that other games and other genres create just as much as joy but i do love we've said this before that old school D has its own momentum if you just play it by rules as written, even it will create content. The surprise role will create stuff. The wandering monsters will create things. I know people want to create their own adventures. Rob of Realm of Fire, our sister oh, yeah. podcast, he recently uh, hopped in on an episode of the DM's Book Club, another podcast, which is in English D&D 5th edition podcast. And they were talking about a setting for 2nd edition D&D called Al-Karim which is like the Arabian Nights setting for that. And they were talking about that. And I was just so surprised by how those lore books are basically just like, you know, if you've ever played a listener, if you've ever played White Wolf stuff, it's just the whole books are just lore. And it's like no gameable content. The whole point is the DM is supposed to internalize everything and then create their own adventure. And if you talk about second edition D&D, it will be most likely that the DM is supposed to make a railroad adventure. I myself cannot understand how D&D, their own creators, lost all this randomization as like a cornerstone of their game design. I mean, you can be a 10-year-old with just a great imagination, put these rules in front of them, and they can start playing with their friends, and the content will be created if you have a published adventure, or if they create their own or follow the rules or whatever they'll get content, but all of that kind of disappeared. <laughs> it, mm-hmm. It's almost like that. what TSR thought. is like, no, players want to have authored stories. They want to create their own stuff. They won't want to have random generation anymore. They want to have, you know, rules for the world and the DM will create an experience, which is like yeah. top to bottom pre-planned. And Al-Kadim sounds like you don't get any random tables whatsoever, basically. You just get, this is what weapons cost in this world. These are the cities. You do get a map there, thankfully, a hex map. But otherwise, it's basically so little gameable content. So I was thinking, oh, I can't understand why D&D chose this path. But they were right. People maybe just wanted to create their own adventures. Give me all the backstory. Give me lots of backstory, and I will create something with that which is basically White Wolf's bread and butter. You know, they give you setting books and it's up to the storyteller, the game master there to create their own adventures with that content. This might be a rather unpopular opinion, but I was talking to the dude that is helping me edit my stuff and him and I both had the same complaint, which is 5e feels like you have to work harder to do basic things. And one of those things is the dungeon crawl. I can't imagine having a lot of fun running 5e in Stonehill Dungeon. Mm. It's just, it's not, it won't feel right. And I think it's because I think, and this is no hate on 5e. I'm currently playing 5e. I'm just thinking that 5e very much feels like Marvel's Avengers in that it's really hard to die. And one of the cornerstones of OSR style RPGs is that the risk of death is there. 
And um, I know there's a couple modules that have been offered, you know, mega dungeons that were built for OSR that are offered in 5e. Yeah. And I just, I'm just kind of like, why would you want to do that? Because it feels like it. that's one of the things that, you know, like you had mentioned, D&D kind of strayed away from. However, I have heard that a lot of the Goodman Games reprints of the uh, classic dungeons, you know, modernized, the 5e stuff, like they did Temple of Elemental Evils. Yeah, and the Lost City... Uh... I yeah, I've heard that those are actually good. Like yeah. it feels like classic D&D, but I wonder how much work went into making it feel like that. I also wonder, I suppose it's doable. It's called Dungeons and Dragons. So I suppose there is yeah. a lot of things there. The dungeon should be in 5e parlance. It's just like the overworld, just underground. And it's a little more, you know, constrained, but you just play it the same way. It, it's just flavor. But in the old school, it's actually something to interact with. It's a specific environment. And because everything can be quite codified, actually, if you just follow the Wandering Monster tables, the room descriptions, and the, you know, uh, the surprise rules and all that stuff from the game, you can just let it roll. And you can, like I said before, it will generate its own momentum. You get home, you get the XP, you don't get XP, then you know next time you have to be smarter or more prepared. The gameplay loop is so, so built in. While 5th edition sounds like basically the DM has to do a lot of work to create adventures and situations and story arcs and have a, you know, a a follow through, hopefully a great ending that hopefully all the characters will arrive to. And if they don't, that might be actually a problem, especially if the characters are core to the story. If character B was actually, you know, the queen's nephew and that person dies in a a boxing match. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> by accident then okay then the whole story falls apart perhaps so maybe that's yeah. why fifth edition is built like it is that the pcs are so uh, durable the one thing i think 5e will be looked back on that it does well is oddly enough the thing that we are complaining about i don't think i have ran or played in stock modules that have felt so honestly captivating Mm. The 5e modules, even the worst one, like Horde of the Dragon Queen, which in my opinion is the worst one, Mm. which is, I think it's like two parts, um, or Rise of Tiamat. Not yet. Is it Rise of Tiamat? I don't know. The first two that came out for 5e, uh, the dragon one. I think even then that those two have so much story and honestly feel like you are living, breathing in an active world. I don't think any modules in D&D have been as captivating and just so full of story than 5e. It's going to be looked at as like the epic saga of all of the five different versions of D&D because of how, I don't want to say railroady and linear, but like you were saying, like 5e is built for like these great magnificent stories and you guys are heroes. It's not as dungeon crawly as previous editions. Um, but that's not necessarily a bad thing. There'll be an arc that's actually authored by someone who put a lot of time yeah. into creating that adventure. So there'll be a you're lot of payoff. You're living a novel, basically. Yeah, you're living a novel. Yeah, exactly. So that's what's cool. And that's what you don't get at all with your own DM just basically creating stuff on the fly. Then everything that happens is basically happenstance. And that's the beauty of it, of course, because all yeah. those things that happen often randomly, but or it was written in the adventure was in this room but the players did it in a specific way and that's what creates the magic there is that all that was basically player choice plus rules plus randomization created that output Uh, and that's what's so magical about it because that happened here at our table it wasn't uh, someone at Wizards of the Coast 
that wrote it for us. But what Wizard of the Coast, of course, provides, like you say, is like someone really <laughs> wrote a, a very intriguing plot line yeah. with surprises and stuff. That's something that, uh, of course, professional writers can give you. And uh, that's something that randomization will never provide, probably. Yeah, and like by no means are we harping on that style of play. Um, for some it's, reason, it's what it's cool about it. I mean, that's its yeah, strengths. For some reason, and you know, I actually have been wanting to mention this on on the podcast. You know, for the people that do listen, I don't know really why people beat up five E players so much. People that make fun of them because they like Critical Role or something. Like, there's there's no reason for that. You know, no. if someone watches you know Critical Role or one of these other actual play podcasts and they end up getting excited about role-playing and they want to run, you know, one of the critical role modules or they enjoy the 5e style of play where it's very fantastical, there's no real risk of death, that shouldn't be seen as something bad that should be celebrated because that is someone that is getting into D&D. They may not like, you know, the lethality that we have in our OSR hobby, but for people that are looking for something that's, you know, akin to critical role where it's very lore-heavy, it's like you're playing through a novel. It's fantastical. It's very safe to run for all ages and things like that. 5e modules are great for that. That's what 5e is going to be remembered for is it's going to be remembered as the game that got everybody into D&D. And that is something I've been waiting for since I was like 15. I personally, as someone that that loves and runs OSR, I have no problem running a module. In fact, last night, my dungeon kick game, everyone was like, hey, can we just play like... 5e and just run rhyme of the frost maiden because it looks fun and i'm like great because it's low prep but you know they're gonna have a fantastical story so i just kind of wanted to comment on that because i see that a lot someone that's in a lot of osr discords is there's just this hatred and just like false fanhood and gatekeeping for people that are into 5e and in critical role and it's just you know i'm just here to say like there's no reason for that i know a lot of people that are in DD that are starting to feel embarrassed like i don't want to mention i like critical role because i don't want to get made fun of and it's That's like terrible i mean have fun with what you have fun with and yeah i've had players who played with me and they can't roll with the lethality and other players who think that the problem solving portions are not what they're into and that, that's totally fine. There are other games that yeah. give you other things. And I think that OSR is basically a great addendum to 5e. So we provide mm-hmm. something completely different. And that's what's so cool yep. about it. You can play D&D in several ways. 5e and Pathfinder and old school D&D. Yeah. So there's three different types of D&D you can play, at least. So there's a lot of things there for different people to play. And the great thing about 5th edition and streaming and all that stuff is that it makes... Uh, in that way, I think that the ties raises all boats is true. All of these people are coming in to the hobby. And thank God it's not only us that lived with it in the 80s and 90s or just toiling yeah. and keeping it alive. Thank God it's young people, all types of people coming into the scene, role playing, finding their joy with it. And all we can do is say that there's other ways to play it. You want to try this? It's player skill and it's dangerous and it's lots of fun because there's a lot of random stuff that'll happen. It'll be crazy. Do you want to play that? Sure. I love it to such a degree that it's actually eclipsed all other types of playing because I loved White Wolf stuff. I loved Call of Cthulhu. And now I've become so diehard about like, this is what I want out of the games that I've left the other things behind. And I try to sing the OSR's virtues or the play style's virtues. But like you say, Critical Role is super fun. I mean, if you have the time to watch the many hours of streams, 
It's like nine hours per episode. Yeah, exactly. I mean, there's a lot of content there and you get invested. That is so cool. I mean, I would have killed for that kind of content when I was a kid or younger. I'm like you in that OSR is what I identify with. And I understand that even D&D is a touch issue for a lot of people because they feel like their games are not getting the attention they think they deserve because everything is D&D. The only reason that maybe I'm so happy with 5th edition is I know that getting them into the OSR is not a big ask. All I have to say is you want to play D&D like you did in the 70s? Then if they say yes, then they're there. We did tease with the spoiler stuff. We've had a great discussion so far, and I just want to open the door to people who want to know a little more about the background. And if you're going to play this, then I suggest you uh, turn it off now because it's a great dungeon. And I don't think that spoilers would, would ruin it for anybody, really. Everything is so random anyway, what's happening. So, But if you don't want to know anything more about the real deal of the dungeon, you can turn it off now and look up your DM friend and ask them to, <laughs> to run Stonehell for you. Yeah, I uh, actually urge people, if you are a person that likes playing OSR and you have a DM that's open to running anything, please turn this part off and please ask, beg even your DM to run you this because Stonehell is honestly one of my favorite. So yes, you uh, you can turn it off now. The cool hook, I think, is that it's not only the king that created the dungeon. He hires a warden who is kind of fucked up and is trying to create a bunch of social experiments in the dungeon, which informs the dungeon. And it's so cool that I think this is almost one of the problems with the book, is that the setup, the historical setup, is so interesting. You're wondering, why the fuck didn't you build that as the adventure? But what is there is still very compelling. So the the vizier that the book calls the warden, uh, the vizier's experiments they spiral out of control. And that's what creates the themes of all the quadrants you'll be seeing. That's when you find the more meaty stuff of the the background to the game. Yeah, it has a really awesome turn, um, largely seen in the second book, which is known as Into the Heart of Hell, um, into an area that's almost like a theme of planar existence and reality and distortion and stuff. I personally loved it. I didn't expect that because I actually didn't own the second book until we had ran through the whole first book because I was like, mm, I don't really need it. But uh, seeing it kind of turn into, um, I think like even the last level is like, it's the whole time you're running it, you're seeing like twists and folds of like reality distorting. And like, it's kind of like this uh, chasm of just, existential almost like lovecraftian horror style is like what i was getting i mean yeah um i i personally liked it what did you think of kind of how he took the story from being it kind of struck me as like you said the experiments and everything and it almost seems like everything was just a nightmare that was just waiting to be unearthed sort of i think the game actually has that kind of you know uh clive barker not in uh aesthetics but in theme that what they were doing there was so morally wrong and they, the classic, uh, they delve too deep theme uh, or motive that it kind of marriages into each other quite well. Like you say, it's more like Dark Souls because there's no one, what you should play is like practically no one up above remembers this place that well. It may be that it was a jail once, but then by interacting with the world, the players will start to understand, oh my gosh, what has happened here? Why is it like this? The DM can also incorporate maybe perhaps books 
that have some backstory if you want the players to get more because it's so terse. There's not much there. It's just more the, it informs the DM how, how they role play the NPCs and how they, the, the room descriptions. Yeah, I think the thing that surprised me the most, especially after running the first half, um, we ran the first half and then we actually ended up taking like like a week or two off because again, we were playing like every day for hours. The second half has shades of the weirdness of LOTFP mm. with like some of the beasts and, and whatnot. And I, I know that there's a couple sections where it just straight up says like, no one lives here. Like anything you come across, it's hinted at, you should probably just kill. <laughs> like, <laughs> if, you know, on site in the way. It describes everything as just being like almost barren. It has a very eerie vibe. And I remember it had to have been the later floors. um, So forgive me for my memory. Um, But there is a section that I remember my players were actually close to terrified of. And I want to say it was like around floor seven. But they're at a point to where they know that when they come across something, it's going to be bad. So that's when I really started to see my players like, taking their time and i had like a spotify session going and like i started playing creepy music and it really started to feel like almost horror-esque but um not quite traversing into the levels of say like death frost doom or uh forgive us or anything like that it's just it's just creepy i know that there's like a giant slug there's like flesh golems and stone golems and stuff which for for people i guess respectfully raised on 5e that might not be that scary for, but for like osr players if someone yeah, has dropped something like like a golem or like like a vampire or something like i'm out like later dude i'm not coming back for you i'm gone yeah that's when people start abandoning each other that's when the group starts to fall apart when you're because my sense of D&D is that you have uh, hirelings that also go up in level. So as a backup plan, if you die, you can take one of them instead. So everyone's in lockstep. But when you're in super dangerous situations and the character you've played with for months, who's gone up in level and level, is threatened with level drain, that's when it really gets... Then sometimes people get a little egotistical and then you have to have a debrief afterwards. Like, let's talk about what happened here. Up until now, you guys have been helping each other and all of a sudden... When you meet these yeah. monsters, the difficulty ramp is is fair, but I would say there's a significant jump from the first half to the second half. You can feel it. That's um, great. My players definitely felt it and kind of were like, they were used to like, all right, next floor, you know, you're turning up the burner from medium heat to like medium high. This is going from, you know, book one to book two. It's like from low medium to high. You definitely feel it. If I'm just turning to a random page here, Oh, here we go. 9A. Your random encounters on this list, Black Pudding, Carcass Scavenger, which is, I think it's like a reskinned. It's a Karen Crawler? Uh, Fire Giant, Ochre Jelly, oh, which... No. Yeah. <laughs> and then 1D3 Vampires. So, and this is in floor nine. So granted, players um, are going to be a little bit strong, but the fact that 1D3 Vampires is... And hopefully have powerful clerics, yeah. Even an option is still insane because like a, a vampire for someone that would be a level appropriate for for floor nine that's still a battle and that's just a random encounter so yeah vampires you need to uh, my sense from old school D is fighting them is almost never an option you have to role play against them you have to start like offering up uh hirelings as like meat or, or something they're so dangerous and they're also powerful you gotta start to negotiate with them 
almost every time, which yeah. is also horrible. Of course, vampires are supposed to be the, the most terrible creatures, I mean, morally, that a player can meet. So the, then you get really into scary territory. And if they straight out fight you, how are you going to combat that? And I mean, I feel like the level drain, how smart they are. It's it's bad. It's bad. I mean, of course, if you especially you play with old school rules that you have to invite them into rooms and stuff, and you can really use uh, traditional um, superstitions about vampires against them. If you can just like find its lair and kill it during the day. But like you say, if that's a wandering monster on level nine, then they yeah. will never have those kind of classic solutions of finding its lair. They're going to be like, oh, no, I just met a vampire. Now, the one thing I did change about Stonehell that I might get chastised for is the tables do not have spores or anything like that. So I created a, a spore table so that players could kind of see what might be lurking around the corner. Mm. For those that don't know what a spore table is, and it's not S-P-O-R-E, it's S-P-O-O-R, spore, is it's something simple like scratchings, markings, things like that. I would roll and I would do the traditional rolls of like spore tables, which I think I did on a one or a six for a random encounter, they would get a spore table. And then I would roll again, and then I would see what the uh, enemy was. So let's say I roll up a vampire. Okay, cool. The players turn around the corner. The next room that is rather just kind of like flavor room. So like, let's say it's like, oh, it's a larder. I just rolled spore and I rolled vampire. So that larder is now going to be, you know, the players open it up and there's five coffins that are along the wall and all five of the lids have been removed and there's no one within. Now players go, fuck, Vampires are around here. Um, so that's what I would do. And the only reason I did that, and I will be self-admitted on it, is I wanted to see the players defeat this. And I felt um, something as serious as vampires, you know, potentially there's three of them. Um, but, you know, but I, I said that, you know, there's like five or six, you know, coffins or whatever. I wanted to give them everything that I felt was fair but wasn't handholdy. And I determined that using a spore table, which is common in a lot of even high level uh, RPGs, but isn't necessarily handing them the win would be useful. So if you are a DM, I would recommend at least between like floor seven and 10, start using spore tables. Because I mean, there's one table on here that I was just looking at. There's like three of the options on a D6 is like hellhounds. And hellhounds are also something that can just TPK you if you are not careful. A lot of content creators within the OSR talk about foreshadowing, that problem solving is almost impossible if you don't foreshadow, which yeah. I think is important. That kind of table would be very helpful, but I incorporate that immediately. If you get a wandering monster table, it should be, what monster is it? How many yards away is it? The reaction of the monster, and if it's surprised or you're surprised. So all those four things inform you a lot. So if it's like really close and they're going to surprise you, then I don't give them any foreshadowing. I'm sorry. That's yeah. what the system said. Yeah. So that's what you can do. And if you're playing in a VTT, you can uh, program all that into the random monster roll. That you just roll and boop, it just spits out. Three vampires, their disposition is hostile. They're 15 yards away. And they they will surprise the players. Oh my God. Yeah. But I agree. Foreshadowing is super important because otherwise it feels cheap that there was no way to find this trap and they were being careful, but they weren't doing it correctly and, and they still died. I think foreshadowing is super important. I think it's better storytelling too, by far having foreshadowing. If I hadn't just said there's like five caskets and they're open and there seems to be this like thick layer of fog and chill temperatures when you open the door. 
you know, versus you open the door and there's just three vampires like sitting, reading a tome. It's kind of like, what? <laughs> you know? But if you were like, there be vampires in these parts <laughs> and then they come across a vampire, it's a little bit creepier. I agree. That's also one thing I think all players or referees can utilize is that look at the wandering monster table and realize that the possibilities are, depending how they're built, but if they're like once every half hour, you roll a one in six, you're going to meet all of them before they leave the level. Even if they go home and come back, they're going to meet them all. If there's a gelatinous cube or any kind of jellies, they usually should eat up all the dust and detritus in the area. So then you start saying, it's really clean in here. And skilled and knowledgeable players who have have encountered them before will start picking up, oh, 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 oh. You haven't given anything away. You just describe the room accordingly and they'll understand, okay, there could be a gelatinous cube here wandering around eating up all the, because everything else in the dungeon has been like total garbage and dusty and dirty and you found corpses all over the place. But here all of a sudden, that's not the case. So that informs the player. So look at the wandering monster tables and depending on how frequent those come up, if it's super frequent, then figure that all the monsters are in play somewhere in the room. Start foreshadowing if you can, if it's appropriate. They get the surprise roll and they're hostile. Well, then the dice gods have decided how this is going to turn out. And that's the risk of being in these dungeons. There's always a known risk that it is very dangerous and some enemies will get the drop on you. Yeah. Well, overall, what do you think you would give Stonehell? As a... How influential it is, it's hard to overstate. Personally, I think it is a milestone in how well it's written... I mean, yeah. the one-page dungeon has its limits, of course, because you can't get that much text on a single page. But the usability is so high that I think that it's... If I were to create a mega dungeon, I'd be really hard-pressed to not emulate at least how the control panel setup is. Yeah. It's so usable. Maybe if you... Now, if it's bigger than a letter page, then it becomes too much text. The whole point is that it's so... You can just look at the entire page and they get a sense of all the content, especially if you've read it before. But okay, the orcs in room 19 are going to come running now because you guys have done something in room 12. Yeah. And content-wise, it's lots of fun. It does put a lot on your shoulders, of course. And if you want to expand on the factions, you have to do some of the work. But I love that kind of dungeon. As soon as the dungeon puts something in print, then all of a sudden I feel like I must honor that. And then I have to read a lot and I have to incorporate it, internalize it in my own logic. But if it's mum on the issue, then I can do whatever I want. Or I use tables that I found somewhere else and to create the stuff that the players will meet. If I weren't already playing Halls of Ardenval, and if I wasn't already so invested in Greg Gillespie's uh, Barrel Maze, I think I would definitely play it. I mean, it's so good that I would love to play it even more than creating my own mega dungeon. It's that good, <laughs> I think. And it's very affordable. I think it's like 15 bucks per book. So 30 bucks, that's cheaper than the price of a standard 5e book. Yeah, and that's printed too, right? Yeah, printed. Granted, it, it takes like two weeks to get to you because it's print on demand, but, but still. Yeah, get it. At least, if nothing else to read, you can just take whatever you want from the book. Just take portions. Literally, each one of these quadrants is just its own dungeon in itself. You can just straight up use each one of these quadrants as their own dungeon that you just plug in. Because that's how big they are. Yeah, exactly. I mean, if you find something flavorful and you're playing at a con or want to have a one-off, uh, just take the dungeon, generate some level-appropriate characters, and just play it. I would agree with you. 
I am very happy that I had the privilege of running it and actually completing it. We beat this in about like six to eight months, maybe um, playing like every day. Like you were saying, the significance of it, the usability of it, I think it is a absolutely fantastic dungeon for learning how to play Mega Dungeons because uh, of how it's laid out. Like you said, the control panel layout, it's a great learning tool for running Mega Dungeons. And I think that fully going through it, there's a lot this dungeon has to offer. You come across horror you know, in the later levels, you come across, you know, you're funny. I mean, it doesn't even have to be funny. For me, it was funny. But, um, you know, your little kobold town that I made into like kind of a tin shed, Blade Runner style city. We even had like gambling tables and stuff. Uh, and then you have creepy parts. You have the hellhounds and the vampires and like the big bad is kind of like a big scary wizard, you know, warping reality and things. I think that even if you have a chance at running a one shot of just a dungeon just pick it up honestly even even as just like a a resource to kind of read this is how a mega dungeon should be ran and laid out i think it's good because in a lot of my projects that i've worked on where i might be contributing to a larger dungeon i've pulled this out for reference and looked to see how it was put together, the the way the rooms connect to each other and the way they build off of each other. Like you were saying, you might be in one quadrant and then set off like maybe uh, some type of alarm or a trap that's quite noisy. Well, all those dudes in the other quadrant just heard you and now they're coming to your spot. So it's great. You can run it as lean as Dark Souls where there's really not much lore um, unless they want to go find it. Or you can make it lore heavy and give them a reason to to explore that lore i will always recommend it and um as i keep saying i'm very happy that i got to run it it was something on my bucket list i mean look at this i still have all of my tabs and everything it's it's too painful <laughs> to remove my little notes uh in my books no of course those need to stay there forever yeah for those that can't see I, uh, my copy of stonehell i have mm -hmm. sticky notes lining the top the side and the bottom yeah it is it is covered and uh I look on it fondly. Um, I recommend it to anybody. So, I just want to say, just start a Mega Dungeon. Have faith that if they ever get to the lower levels, it'll be lots of fun. But if they never do, that's also okay. I mean, just have it as a, a setting, basically, a huge setting book. And just mine it for content. Play as much as you want. If the players want to actually delve into the bottom of this stuff, you can tell them, okay, out of character, there's a lot of content here. So if you guys are intrigued with what we're doing... Just continue and we can play this out and we'll see how long it'll take us. And like you say, uh, sometimes people play for years with the same group and they can really, you know, use the entire book in the end. But if you think that, oh, that sounds like a, such a time sink, just play what people want to play. Just play the upper levels, have fun. And if you want to, you know, uh, fast forward stuff, do that too. Just cut out levels one to four and then make level five and down like level one just generate some higher level characters and play it that way instead. I modeled my playthrough. And again, you know, this is just how I ran it. I modeled my playthrough after the original Diablo. If you guys remember the original Diablo, um, it was basically a mega dungeon that was, yeah. you know, you just descended deep. So that's why I ended up putting in those town portal scrolls. And uh, yeah, exactly. granted, they were difficult to find, um, but I did mold it. Sounded, so it sounds super reasonable. I thought it was a yeah. cool addition. And I had a town that would allow them to sell stuff and buy new armor. And I had 
Donjon or Dungeon, the website uh, has different tables and stuff for shops. And I would just have those up. And every time players would come in, I would refresh all the tables. And then that's what would be available. So they would always be like, oh, I want to see if there's like a new weapon or something. The loop of the, the roguelike or Diablo, for example, it's a great uh, entry point for this type of playing. People find the loop of going to levels and dungeons and being exposed to danger and having to keep their wits about them so they can survive it. You would be surprised how many sessions, because I hear other people say, I'm so proud of our group. We got six sessions in this game and now we're done. Like, I was, okay, that's cool. But I've played 50 sessions with my friends weekly <laughs> and uh, they're still just level uh, four. And of course, I'm not saying that to awe anybody or think, oh my God, that's such a time commitment. I just mean that my players come back week after week after week. And if they can't play, they straight up apologize, not only for the inconvenience, which it is no inconvenience, but because I know that they wanted to play, but something came up and they can't. So they feel like I'm like almost bad about it for themselves. About missing it or... Yeah. yeah. So so uh, the gameplay loop, I would say it again, it's great. <laughs> I'm happy we finally got to talk about this because it, it is a milestone. I want to thank everyone for hanging out with us. Uh, it was lots of fun. We hope to come back soon with a new episode. We might talk about something completely different. We'll see. Let us know. Let us know. Yeah, if you have any suggestions or games or if you are a creator and hear this and you want to talk about your game, just hit us up. We'll... Uh, Gladly talk to people who create for the scene and uh, want to talk about their experiences, their design choices, and uh, let their voice be heard. I would also be interested to see if people would have an interest in maybe doing a a one-off, one-off session of something. Because I think, I think that'd be fun. Because there definitely seems to be a number of people that are into OSR and have, you know, mentioned and talk to us in the discord channel that I think it might be fun. You know, that's yeah. Yeah. I would love to to do something like that. That'd be lots of fun. Yeah. If our listeners want to hang out with us, join the full metal RPG discord. You can find the links to the discord all over the place on the internet. So just find us right in our channels, uh, hit us up with your feedback or whatever. We'll discuss it there. You can find me on discord uh i'm in there uh you'll see me i think i'm just listed as gabe or if you're on twitter you can find me on csgrpg that is where you can contact me now it's changed as i have launched my company which is doing osr content so you can find me on there just dm me or just you know follow me or whichever i pretty much reply to anybody that hits me up again that is csgrpg it stands for copper state games rpg We'll have links in the description too. But uh, yeah, uh, let us know if you'd be interested because I, I would love to run like a one-off, you know, door kick or something. And maybe we can do something with FMRPG where it's a, a Patreon thing or I don't know. We'll, we'll figure it out. We'll figure it out. Uh, if nothing else, it'd be cool to, you know, start something. Maybe our listeners can create their own groups with help from yeah. the Discord and, and organize more uh, play sessions. And maybe me and Gabe want to contribute or hang out or play more in the future we'll, we'll see yeah well thank you everyone for listening and uh, we'll see you soon again have a good one